Genesis chapter 47 and 48. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way where there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand and toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and he brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a great people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brothers shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given you to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Thank you. Good morning again. 
Jacob had lived for 147 years. By his own admission, it was a full life. It was filled with hardship. He said to Pharaoh, few and evil have been my day, have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. But it was also a life filled with the blessing of God, for he said to his grandsons, God has been my shepherd all my life long. And now our passage finds him near the end of this full life, even if he considered it short by the standards of his father and grandfather. Knowing that his time is nearly up, he's unable to see, his eyes are weak, he's barely able to sit up, Jacob intended to use his last words and ounces of strength to bless the boys who would carry on his line and God's covenant promises. Three big ideas and three implications. Here's the big ideas. God is perfectly faithful, even across death and generations. Second, it is God's faithfulness. This is, this is important. It is God's, faith, God's faithfulness that creates and sustains faithfulness in his people. And third, when God's faithfulness leads to faithfulness in his people, it creates and it results in unmatched and unending joy. So we get significant glimpses of each of those three big ideas this morning, and they lead to three important takeaways. The rightness of trusting in God for everything, the rightness of passing on that trust of God to future generations, and the rightness of remembering that this life is but a vapor. Let's pray. God, thank you for this next story in the life of Joseph and Jacob and your covenant people. Thank you that as we near the end of Genesis, we're doing so having seen that you are still faithful. You still have yet to fail to keep one of your, even one of your promises. You have been perfectly faithful to all of them. And through that, we are seeing, able to see that you are building faith into your people, that your faithfulness is causing your people to have faith. And when those two things come together, we are seeing a sweetness found nowhere else. That's what you've made us for. You created us for that. That's what the garden was and was meant to stay prior to the fall. You being faithful to all of your promises and your people trusting fully in that and knowing a sweetness that can only come when those two things go together. God, help us to see from this the the diabolical, twisted nature of sin, the, the sinfulness of sin. Sometimes it comes at us with a full frontal assault with all the fire and pitchforks and things we imagine, but but more often we see in this passage that it comes at us by shifting our focus just a little bit, by causing us to forget things, little things even sometimes that we ought to remember and remembering things that we ought to forget, by fearing things that we shouldn't and not fearing things that we should. They're so small and probably none of us would be too alarmed to find them in ourselves or someone else. But we see in this passage how distracting those little things can be, how how easy it is to take our eyes a little bit off of you and miss everything. 
So please turn our eyes back to you, to your perfect faithfulness and the rightness and goodness of putting our faith wholly in you. And that, that through that alone is fullness of life, forgiveness of sins, everlasting life and all joy forever. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when the time drew near that Israel, that is Jacob, must die. That's a pretty dramatic way to begin a story, right? I mean, that's it, how good stories start. Here we go. When the time drew near that Israel must die. That's where things stood in the course of God's plan to redeem a people for himself. That's where things stood. After a nearly two-decade reunion with his thought-to-be lost favorite son, Jacob knew that it was time to make final preparations before his death. And hopefully you picked up on when Ginny read this passage or when you read it in preparation this week. There are two matters in particular. I want you to think about this for a second. You know that your life is about to be over. You have you don't know exactly how much time is left, but you know it's not long. You want to attend to whatever you have left unattended to. The, the things that matter are now rising to the surface and you want to take care of them. What would they what would they be? Well, in this particular case, two things needed to be attended to. Describing those two things is largely the thrust of this passage, and that's where all the big ideas come from and the takeaways come from. The first was the matter of his burial. It is in a true, albeit subtle, it's true but subtle, in a true but subtle act of faithfulness, Jacob insisted that he be buried in the land of God's promise along with his father's. He could see the beginnings of God's covenant fulfillment, but he also knew that much more was yet to come. Jacob asking to be buried in Canaan before Canaan was actually in his possession, not just promised, was an act of faith. You got to get that. This is really important. It wasn't his yet, but he believed the promises of God that it would be. And so in faith, he asked to be Buried there. It's sort of like buying your graduation gown for college on the day you receive your acceptance letter. There's there's a decent amount of trust there. But unlike college freshmen, however, God never fails. In faith, he made Joseph swear to him that he would take him back to the land of the promise. Having received Joseph's assurance, Jacob bowed to God in silent, contented covenant worship. We see in verse 31 of chapter 37. That was the first matter. So there's two things. He's about to die. He needed to deal with two things. One is the matter of his, the place of his burial. And here's the second and the bulk of our passage, all of 48. The second matter of deathbed importance concerned the blessing of his heirs. God had made a promise, a covenant promise, not just to his grandfather Abraham or to his father Isaac or to him self, but to his offspring after him forever. And so the second matter concerned the blessing of his heirs. Jacob had been blessed by God, and now it was time to pass on that blessing. Once again, it was Joseph who came before Jacob, this time with his two sons. Jacob summoned his strength, we're told, in chapter 48, verse 2, and sat up in bed. Before recalling God's kindness to him, he said, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you 
And I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you as an everlasting possession. Again, it was his belief in that that caused him to want to be buried there. What a beautiful and succinct summary this was of the covenant promises God had made. First with his grandfather and then his father and then with him. Love this. God had first made this promise many years ago. And it continued on through his father and through him and now through his offspring. Again, I just, I love, I love this. Abraham had passed it down to his second son, Isaac. Isaac had passed it down to his second son, Jacob. And now Jacob was about to pass it down to his 11th son, Joseph, and his grandsons. In the covenant line, this is no small reminder, even apparently as Joseph had forgotten, that God is bound by no human traditions of the firstborn. In each case, it was expected that it would be the firstborn. And in each case, God said, don't trust in human traditions. Trust in me. Second, first, 11th, it doesn't matter. What matters is my faithfulness. God will choose to bless whomever he chooses. Interestingly, then, there's this kind of adoption that takes place in verse 5. Jacob would pass on Joseph's blessing to Joseph's sons. But before he would do so, he declared them mine as his first two born were his, as Reuben and Simeon are. Joseph's firstborn sons, so Jacob's son Joseph's firstborn sons, would be as if they were his own, Jacob's own firstborn sons. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in the inheritance, Jacob declared. It is for that reason, do you know this? There's no tribe of Joseph, but rather there are two half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, which you can read about later in the Old Testament. In a bit of foreshadowing, next we see that Jacob named Joseph's sons out of order. He mentioned the secondborn, Ephraim first, in verse 5. It should not be surprising then that just a little bit later, when it came time to bless the boys, Jacob kissed them and embraced them. And then he blessed Ephraim before Manasseh in spite of Joseph's intentions and objections. Joseph presented his young sons to be blessed by placing his father's right hand, first blessing, on the firstborn and his left hand on the second. But Jacob crossed his hands and blessed them out of order, blessing the younger over the older. Both would be blessed, the text tells us, but the second would receive a greater measure of blessing. The content of the blessing was a mixture of two things. It was a mixture of acknowledging the goodness and faithfulness of God, and second, for Jacob's desire for God's covenant promises and blessings to continue on through his offspring. He acknowledged God's faithfulness to his fathers, the lifelong shepherd and protector and rescuer that God had been for him and them, and then asked God to bless Ephraim and Manasseh by carrying on the name of the patriarchs and growing them into a great nation. Jacob hoped that it would be so, such that it might become the wish of all. How's this for a blessing, dads especially. Think about this. What do you want for your kids? In this case, he blessed them in such a way, I love this, that all would would want to be blessed as Ephraim and as Manasseh. So again, think about this. If you wanted your kids to 
be blessed financially, you might say, God, let them be as Bill Gates is to the world. Or if you wanted them to be blessed athletically, you might say, God, bless them as Michael Jordan is to the world. Or if you wanted them to be uh, brilliant thinkers, you might say, God, bless them as Albert Einstein is to the world. He wants them to be blessed so much that at their name, all of the world thinks of the blessing of God. That's awesome. Dads want that for your kids. Moms want that for your kids. That that the whole world would think of the names of your children and think of God's perfect faithfulness and great blessing. That's awesome. I love this too. Uh, in, in conclusion, he made it clear that his time was near and he said to Joseph, God will be with you and will bring you again into the land of your fathers. And then he added to the blessing, <laughs> you know, I don't know, like I'm thinking maybe I'll get an extra fly fishing reel or something like that when my when my dad, you know, one that we didn't even know existed. And son, I have a fly fishing reel, but nope, you get a mountain <laughs> here. I got a mountain for you. I got it with my bow and never told you about it. But in addition, to all of this, I got a mountain for you. So he embraced them and kissed them and blessed them. The emotion, the genuine emotion of Jacob through this can't it can't be missed. He remembered with sadness the death of his wife, Rachel, and wondered aloud at the sweetness. God, I didn't deserve this. I didn't even think I would see my son Joseph again. But I only not only get to see him, but I get to embrace and kiss his kids. You just sense this feeling of gladness and deep emotion and, and a bit of sorrow. There is a tinge of sadness in this passage, but the overall tone is one of gratitude in gladness. There's no hint that he's afraid to die. There's no hint that he's worried about going to be with God. His hope is that his the faithfulness of God to him and the faith in him that resulted from that would continue on to the next generation and the one after that. So as I mentioned, in all of that, that's the story in a nutshell, and all of that are three big ideas. Let's let's look at those. The first is familiar although built on just a little bit. The first big idea is this. God is perfectly faithful. We've heard that dozens of times already. But the the little way that it's built upon is even through death and across generations. You've seen dozens of times God never fails to keep his promises. In the blessings of Jacob's sons and grandsons, he kept yet another the faithfulness to be the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and to their descendants forever is carried on and fulfilled yet again. Never get tired of hearing of that grace. Never get tired of hearing of that. God is perfectly faithful. Without end, he is a perfectly faithful God. Well, more remarkable still is the fact that even the usual Promise keepers don't apply to God. Son, I'll take you to a, you know, a game before I die. And you can't always fulfill that. Death can, has this way of ending promises. But the usual promise breakers don't apply to God. Not even death can get in the way of God's faithfulness. That's the point of Jacob's speech in 48, 3 through 6, and his blessing in 48, 15, and 16. In chapter 12, God first made the covenant with Abraham. In chapter 25, Abraham died, but the promise continued on through his son, Isaac. Well, then in chapter 35, Isaac died, but God still remained faithful to his promise to Isaac's son, Jacob. And now, even as Jacob neared death, God's promise would live on in his sons and grandsons. 
capture, enslavement in the, in the patriarchs. We've seen capture and enslavement, imprisonment, barrenness, sin, and even death. And none of these things could stop or even slow down the faithfulness of God across generations. Jacob realized that, and so he trusted in the perfect faithfulness of God to continue on even after he died. That's the thing that Hebrews, you've heard of maybe Hebrews chapter 11, we, we sometimes call it the, the hall of faith, you know, not the hall of fame, but the hall of faith. Well, Jacob gets a, a line in that, and his line praises him for this. Of all the things in Jacob's life, God God could have praised him for it was it was this. Of all the things he could have highlighted, it was his faith that God would be faithful to the next generation through his blessing. By faith, Hebrews eleven twenty one says, Jacob, when dying, right here, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. The most praiseworthy act of Joseph's life and faith before God was this worship-filled trust in the death-transcending faithfulness of God. How can we hear this grace and not remember the gospel? How can we hear this and not remember the gospel? There has never been a time in which death seemed to have won more than when Jesus hung lifeless on the cross. But it is passages like this one that were given to prepare God's people for the fact that God would use death to defeat death. If death could break God's covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it could break it at any time. But if it couldn't, if it couldn't break it in their lives, why would it be able to defeat the new covenant promises in Jesus? Again, hear this grace. Remember the gospel. Rather than threaten God's faithfulness, Jesus' death became the very means by which he secured it eternally. Praise God for this grace. God is perfectly faithful, even across death and generations. Here's the next big idea. God was and is and forever will be faithful without exception. That's the first. The second is that it is God's perfect faithfulness that creates and sustains faithfulness in you and in me and in all who would hope in him. It is God's faithfulness that creates and sustains our faithfulness. That's cool. In this passage, we see this repeatedly in Jacob responding to God's faithfulness through greater acts of faith on his own. Because Jacob had witnessed God's generational faithfulness to his father and grandfather in his dying days, he was not worried about his eternal state. Instead, he was being, he was worried about being buried in the promised land as an expression of his faith in God. If God hadn't been perfectly faithful throughout his life, Jacob would have had no reason to believe God would be faithful in his death and it wouldn't have mattered where he was buried. Because God had been faithful and true to his promise already to Abraham and his offspring. Jacob had faith that God would make good on the promise of land as well. So because he had multiplied the offspring of Abraham already, even in this foreign land, Jacob trusted that he would give them the land as well one day. And because he had faith in these things, he trusted to pass along the blessing to his sons and grandsons, even promising you will go back. And because God had faithfully returned Joseph, remember a long time ago the the dreams he was given? Because God had faithfully returned Joseph to rule over the family, even though Jacob doubted for a little while, he had faith that God would shepherd, protect, multiply, and 
and bless his descendants after he died. God is faithful. God's people must be faithful as well. We learn from Abraham that God counts that faithfulness as righteousness in Christ. But it is God's faithfulness that leads to and preserves ours. What a what a double gift that is, that he's faithful to us and through that creates the faith in us that he requires of us. Amen. When my kids were little, I regularly asked them to jump off of things to me and I would catch them off the refrigerator or off the pool ledge or whatever. And I mean, I had about a 95% catch rate, but, but there was that 5%, right? And yet, for the most part, they still trusted me. Similarly, if you've ever been on a sports team, you'll, your coach inevitably said, trust me through these workouts. They're going to be hard, but we'll win. And you lost, uh, at least some of the time. To my knowledge, there is no undefeated coach at any significant level through, through years and years. They ask us to trust them. But God is different. He's never lost. <laughs> He's never faithless. He never fails to keep a promise. While my 95% success rate kept my kids jumping and concussion-free, at least as it related to jumping to me, God is 100% faithful. He has 100% success rate. And it is his perfect faithfulness that creates and sustains and makes our faithfulness in him make sense. It creates it and sustains it. It makes it the most reasonable thing we can do because trusting in him alone is the only 100% certain thing we can do. That's the second big idea of this passage. And here's the third. God's faithfulness leading to faithfulness in his people results in unmatched and unending joy. <laughs> we, only get, we only get glimpses of that in this passage but we've, we know from the rest of God's word that the taste we're given here will turn into a never-ending banquet in the new heavens and earth. We see it here, this, this sweet union of God's faithfulness and Jacob's faithfulness and the joy that it produces. We, we see it here, glimpses of it here. And Jacob's calm confidence, we see it in his near-death worship. He's worshiping God peacefully as he nears death. We see it in his rest in God's blessing. We see it in his thankfulness at being able to see Joseph's kids. We see it in Jacob's confidence in the blessing that he gave, that it is certain because it is from God. All over, we see little bits of the kind of sweetness that it will be ours in full forever when we hope truly and fully in God. You've heard this passage many times, but hear this passage again in light of this great idea. Revelation 21, 3 through 5. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This whole passage is about an offspring and in a dwelling place. They're not at the dwelling place yet. And even Canaan isn't ultimately the promised land. The dwelling place, the promised land, the garden that we were made for is with God. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. This is the covenant language all over in the new heavens and new earth. And God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Again, not, you can't not think of this passage. The covenant language is the same. The, the death that is imminent is the same. 
There will be no more of that. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. These words are trustworthy and true. Put your faith in them, Grace. Revelation 21 describes the time when both God's faithfulness and ours will be combined perfectly and eternally, and the kind of full and everlasting joy that results. And it is passages like this that give us little glimpses of that to awaken us for a greater appetite. So what do we do with all this? Three big ideas, three main takeaways. The first is the rightness of trusting in God. This has been a theme week after week, so I'll just mention it briefly. God's perfect faithfulness means that it is right to trust in his every promise. It is good to base our every hope and action on the things God has said. All that you do, Grace, ought to be tied to a specific aspect of God's nature and will and promises. Why do you do what you do? Why do you love what you love? Why do you hope in what you hope in? It needs to be tied if it is to be rightly rooted and, as we sang earlier, anchored through times of trial and difficulty and into eternity. It will be because it is tied to a specific aspect of God's nature and will and promises. We must trust in God for all things, even as we increasingly recognize that God is perfectly trustworthy. That this kind of faithfulness comes from God's faithfulness also means that we need to pray that God would grant faith to the unbelievers in our life. If the kind of faith that pleases from God is the result of God's faithfulness to us, we need to pray that God would grant that, eyes to see that, to the unbelievers in our lives. Jesus was clear, and you see this at football games on signs and stuff, but Jesus was clear on the fact that no one will come to the Father but by him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, John fourteen six. You see that sign. You ever wonder what that was, John 14, 6? That's what it is. But just a few chapters earlier in the same Gospel of John, we, we read that no one comes to Jesus but by the Father who draws him. And he does that through opening our eyes to see his perfect faithfulness. Let us pray to God then that God would faithfully draw non-Christians in our lives to Jesus. And all of that then means that when we see God's perfect faithfulness and it awakens faithfulness in us, whenever we come to faith or trust in God or someone else does, it is right to praise God. No one got smart enough to trust in Jesus. No one did enough religious deeds or good works to trust in Jesus, to make ourselves worthy of his fellowship and forgiveness. But God worked that out in us. And so wherever we find true faith, we praise God for it. It is right to trust God. Here's the second main takeaway. It said it is right not only to place our faith in God, but also to share our faith in God with the next generation, especially parents, our kids. We're primarily charged with the next generation, those of us who have children. All of us are as a church, but parents especially are commanded by God. Insofar as it is right for you to trust in God, it is right to share that trust in God with the people who come after us. This theme is everywhere in our chapter, even as it ought to be everywhere in the life of our church. That's what G to G is for. Generation to generation is for. That's why we want kids in the worship service as much as possible. That's why we keep them in for the offering, not because we want to extract money from these little ones, but because we want them to see the faith of their parents, 
trusting in God such that this these resources that we have that are so precious to so many are nothing to us compared to Jesus. It's everywhere in this passage, and it ought to be. And I praise God that in many ways it is everywhere in our church. Don't be silent about the gospel or its implications for life in Jesus. We must be intentional to pass our faith on to future generations, or at the very least to describe the perfect faithfulness of God to us and our perf- and, and our God work trust in him to the next generation. Many of you are actively working to pass on your affinity for a certain hobby. I've seen it, parents. I've seen it in me. I've seen it in some of you. You have a hobby that you like, and so you're working diligently to pass a love for that on to your kids. Or maybe it's a sports team, or maybe it's a standard of, of living. Maybe it's your career. You're doing this, and I'm doing this. We're, we're working to pass certain things on to our children, more than all of these things, one billion times more than all of these things. We need to pass along our love for and trust in God. Our second takeaway is that it is a privilege and a command for one generation to declare and praise the faithful and glorious work of God to the next. And notice, notice this, parents. This is not merely information impartation. This is worship impartation. This is faith impartation. It is ultimately the gift of God. But, but we work not just to give them knowledge, but to give them worship and to see our worship and our faith in Christ. Consider afresh and carefully how you might do that today. And here's the last one. The rightness of remembering the vaporness, the mistness of this life. We are right to take away from this passage a fresh remembrance that life is short. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed tonight. But even if we have 10,000 tomorrows, our lives on earth are still but a mist, James says. Unless Jesus returns first, we will all die. Rightly understood, this doesn't lead us to discouragement or sadness. It leads, though, to urgency, intentionality, and believe it or not, rest. The knowledge that you will die is not meant to terrify you. It's meant to spur you into action, to distill the things that don't matter from the things that do, and to help you sleep well at night. This passage is a strong reminder that we ought to live life with the end in mind. We'll all end up in the we will all end up dead at some point. It's meant to help us to live life with the end in mind and with the mind that the end is near. This reality displayed in this passage as Jacob comes near, hundred. none of us will probably live 147 years, but he did. Even at the end of that longer than usual life, it was coming to an end. This reality will focus us and keep us from wasting our lives. Grace, thank and say and do only things that will matter in eternity. In addition, acknowledging the vaporness of life will fill us with peace and courage that can only come from knowing that we win in the end. If your hope is in Jesus, you win. The fact that life is short by itself, if that's all you know, that's scary. The fact that life is short and then in Jesus you get to enter Everlasting paradise and fellowship with God is comforting and strengthening beyond measure. At the risk of overusing this illustration, I'm going to overuse this illustration. 
There was a football game yesterday that I didn't really get to watch, but I know the outcome. And so today, I know a few of the twists and turns that happened. There were fumbles and interceptions, and the good team was was down by 16 late in the second half, and, and yet they came out victorious in the end. And so the bumps and the fumbles, and not only can I endure them, I can enjoy them because in the end they win. And it's part of the lore and the story that will live on. And if a DVR can give me that kind of comfort and that kind of rest, goodness gracious. How about a covenant God who never fails? How about a covenant God who never fails? If I can watch a game with my sports team and find joy in their shortcomings and failures in the knowledge that they win in the end, How about with a God who never fails? Life is short. Do what matters. You can write that down somewhere. Life is short. Do what matters. And do it with all the confidence that a perfectly faithful God who has promised everlasting joy in his presence to all who will hope in him can bring. So here we go. Conclusion. Three big ideas. God is perfectly faithful even across death and generations. It is God's faithfulness that creates and sustains faithfulness in his people. And when God's faithfulness leads to faithfulness in us, the result is an unmatched and unending joy. And from these three things, the three main takeaways are the rightness of trusting wholly, entirely, fully in God, the rightness of passing that trust on to the next generation, and the rightness of remembering the vaporness of this life. And so as we seek to understand and live these things out, let us remember that Jesus died for our failures and sent us his spirit to empower our obedience. Let us press into this passage, its lessons and its implications, humbly, prayerfully, diligently, and in full awareness that God is worthy, Jesus is Savior, and the Spirit is sufficient.